Good morning again, Missio. Um, today we are reading from Acts chapter 15, 1 through 6, and 26 through 29. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and uh, as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brother, to your brothers to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and distrib uh, disturbed you, troubling your minds with what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. I'm going to talk about avoiding meat strangled today. So buckle up. No, I'm just joking. I mean, we are, but, you know, in a roundabout way. Welcome, everybody, once again. My name is Johnny. I am one of the pastors here at Missio. It's so good to be with you. I have the uh, joy and honor today of concluding our series, Heart. For the last six weeks, we have been in this series, Heart, having a conversation about practices that shape in us hearts of God-oriented and God-like love. The goal has been to like walk along the journey of spiritual transformation and spiritual formation into a life like Christ, to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, and at the very center of it all, to experience the love of Jesus and be transformed into Christ-likeness from that love. We've said repeatedly that this is not a conversation about control or about willpower or about how self-disciplined you are. Can you white-knuckle your way into holiness? Instead, it is a recognition of limitations and a participation in what it is that God 
is doing in us and through us and around us. And so far, we've looked at five practices, silence and solitude, simplicity, reading scripture, and then last week, Jordan and Heather led us in a conversation about service and participating in what God is doing outside of us. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, highly recommend it. So practical, so helpful. Today, we are finishing this conversation, this set of spiritual practices, and in many ways, the thing that we're going to talk about today is what we have been building towards. It's like all these practices have been leading us in a place. And then they're good on their own. They're worth doing on their own. But they have been kind of leading us and directing them in a certain direction. And we needed everything that came before to have the conversation that we are going to have today. And in many ways, the practice that we're going to talk about today is sort of what motivated this series in the first place. It's like kind of what started the conversation in our own staff meetings and between Heather and I. And it all kind of comes down to a question. There's a question at the center of this that, that it all boils down to. And it's, it's a question that I think most of us are asking or have had to ask in the past. It's one of those kinds of questions that I think is at the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and have faith. It's one of those questions that I think is so central to our cultural moment. And here is the question. How do we listen, know, and respond to the voice and the work of God? How do we hear God? How do we know what God is saying? How do we know that we're listening to God? How do we pay attention and respond to what God is saying? I think there's two kind of like easy ways to answer this question. And one side of this like easy approach to answering this question would be like, read your Bible. If you just read your Bible, you hear the voice of God, and you know what to do. Great. Easy. Moving on. And then on the other side, you might say, well, you pray and you ask God, and God will speak to you, and then you'll have the answer. And so great. Moving on. And I think both of those are good. I think both of those are true. But if you are like me, then you have probably also found yourself in moments where you read the Bible or prayed and did not feel like you received the kind of clarity you were hoping for. Or the kind of clarity that leads to easy action and response. Now, sometimes that can be because the moment that you find yourself in is complicated, or it's personal, like you're wrestling through, do I take a job, do I get married, do I have a child, do I start this project, do I have this conversation with these people, do I repair this relationship? And you go to the Bible and you're like, okay, there's things here that direct me, like maybe compel me, and maybe God is speaking to me in this way, but it's a feeling or a sense of something, or it's general, and I'm trying to interpret it and make sense of it, and navigated. Or, or maybe on the other side, you've been praying through something and you feel like maybe God is saying something about what you should do in your life or your job or your neighborhood or your workplace, but it doesn't feel that clear, that concise. And sometimes you're praying and you're wrestling and you're thinking through things and you wonder like, is that God or is that me? Like, do I care about this or does God care about this? Or are those two the same thing sometimes? Or am I just hungry? I'm not actually sure what I'm experiencing in this moment. Is that God or I just need a burrito? So how do you know what God is saying or doing around you so that you can respond? This is the practice of discernment. We use that word a lot here, discernment. 
And I found a definition that I thought was really helpful from the pastor and theologian Ruth Haley Barton. She says this, that discernment is the practice of recognizing and responding to the presence and activity of God, both in ordinary moments and in the large decisions of our lives. It's about being able to recognize and respond to what God is doing. And I love that she clarifies both in small moments and in big ones, in our own life, in our own family, in our own workplaces, wrestling with our own money, but also in bigger moments, like as we as a community wrestle through conversations together and discern what it is that God is saying to us as a people and as a body and as a church, that discernment applies to both. This is one of those practices, I mean, all of these practices have felt important. And one of the conversations that we've been having throughout the series is that spiritual practices as an imitation of Jesus feel important because maybe one of the most profound criticisms of the modern American church is that it does not look very much like Jesus. So we want to be a people that look like Jesus. And I think this criticism is maybe most acute here when the church tries to navigate through difficult conversations or difficult issues. Often the church looks as polarized or politicized as the world around us. Sometimes we look far more politicized and polarized than the world around us. We've probably all been in communities or in environments where conflict ripped us apart. And this practice feels important because I don't know that we've seen communal discernment or listening to the voice of God as a people modeled very well for us. But I believe, and we'll look at this in the text, that there is a vision for being a people who listen to God together. It won't always be easy, and it won't always be clear, and it will feel very risky. But I do believe that throughout Scripture there is a vision for what it looks like to be a people who discern well together. So this is what we're going to talk through today. What does it mean to be a people who discern, who listen, who pay attention, who recognize so that we can respond to what God is doing. And I want to give you a bit of an outline of our conversation today. I'm going to start with two sort of foundational ideas, two ideas that I think are helpful to just like set the bar so that we're all talking about the same thing. Then I'm going to tell a story from the book of Acts. And then we'll look at some postures or habits that I think we need to adopt if we're going to do this work well together. So hopefully we can do that and still get you to the Super Bowl. <laughs> could, you, could you imagine if you were here until like four? All right, jumping right in. So two big ideas that I think establish the precedence and the foundation for what we're talking about. Big idea number one, we've talked about this a ton, but I still want to reiterate it. God is on the move and inviting us to listen and respond. If you were with us last week or listened to the conversation that Heather and Jordan had, this was the base of it, that God is moving. God is active, and yes, in us, and yes, in this community, but also in all the places outside of us, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, in places we've never even imagined or dreamed about. God is far ahead of us, and our job or our invitation is to listen to what God is saying and respond to what God is doing. God is moving, healing, renewing, transforming, speaking, and we, through the Spirit, have the ability to hear and to join and to pay attention. So that's base assumption number one. If we're going to talk about discerning the voice of God and responding to the movement of God, big idea number one, God is moving. There is something to pay attention to. 
Big idea number two. Discernment is a communal practice. This might be the thing that is a little bit newer. Discernment is a communal practice. We can hear, listen, and respond to God in our individual lives, most certainly. But it is not intended to stay in our individual spaces. Discernment, I think, at its best, invites others in. It is about cultivating and seeing the activity of God in one another, discerning that together, having a conversation together, bringing the collective wisdom of one another. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, as Peter says in 1 Peter, that all of us have access, that all of us have been filled with the Spirit, that all of us have been gifted in a way to pay attention and to participate. And so discernment, at its best, is a communal practice. And the example that we're going to look at in the book of Acts is a communal practice. But if you wander through Scripture looking at discernment examples, you will find that they are most often communal endeavors. There's a people together listening, a people together trying to respond, a people together trying to work it out. What is it that God is doing in and around us, and how do we make sense of that, and how do we respond? So these are the two big ideas that I want you to hold in your head. God is moving, God is on the move, and we can pay attention, and it happens in the presence of others together as a community. Now hold those two big ideas in your mind as we move into Acts 15 and our story, because you get to see both of them playing out. Acts 15 is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. I I know I said that a lot, so you probably don't believe me, but it is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts, especially because of how it ends, which is not what I expect or even really want when it comes to communal discernment, but we'll get there in a moment. The story begins in Acts 15, verse 1 through 2. Just to reiterate, here is what the text says. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, the body of Christ, that unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see if the apostles, the original followers of Jesus, and the elders, the leaders of the church, had to say about this question. So the early Christian community was, in its earliest iterations, just a community of Jewish converts. It was a bunch of Jewish people who had met Jesus and believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. It was like a really cultural and ethnically homogenous space. These are people who were informed by the Old Testament law, whose lives were shaped by Torah or the customs of Moses, and they saw no reason to question that because the Jesus' work was just an extension of that reality, not some deviation or change. But then something wild begins to happen that non-Jewish people begin to convert to the way of Jesus. They begin to follow Jesus. They hear the story, they hear the good news, and they begin to want to be followers of Jesus. And so it leads to this dispute that is happening in Acts 15, which is what do you do with all of these non-Jewish converts? What of the law, what of Torah, what of the customs of Moses do you ask them to keep? All of it? None of it? Paul has a pretty lax view, according to this moment and other letters in the New Testament. But some people have a really stringent view. 
that you need to keep all the customs of Moses, the dietary laws, the clothing restrictions, and even the circumcision laws. And this debate begins to rage fiercely in the early community. And I think it's hard for us maybe to wrap our minds around why this conversation matters, but they are not debating trivial issues. The things that are in contention for this early community are issues of identity, of politics, of theology, even of justice. Some of the people who are converting to Christianity to be followers of Jesus were Romans, who Jewish men and women saw as occupiers. If you're in a conversation, you're like, how do we handle these like, occupying Romans as they convert to our religion? What do we ask them to do? What do we ask them to give up? What do we ask them to change about their lives. And the law had sheltered Israel. It had guided Israel. It was scripture. It was the thing that kept their identity intact. And so this debate is so fundamental to the people of the early church. And they're wrestling with this conversation. It becomes so intense that they decide that the only way to navigate this is to gather the leaders of the church together and discern together what the outcome should be. What do we do? with this activity of God, the wisdom that we've inherited from our tradition, and the questions that we are wrestling with. So they have a council. Verse 6, it said, the apostles and the elders, they met to consider this question. So they gather together as a people to discern the issue. And the conversation that follows is kind of wonderful Different leaders speak, different people argue for different positions and different sides. And the first person to get up is the Apostle Peter. And he says this thing that I love. He says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers and sisters, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that, they have been, that we have been saved just as they have. Peter gets up and he says, this is what I've seen. That God is moving amongst these people. That they are coming to trust Jesus, that they are becoming followers of Jesus, and the activity of God is confirming that these folks are having experiences as encounters with God. As the conversation continues to go, the Apostle Paul gets up and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and he begins to argue that Scripture agrees with what they are seeing. And the chapter continues to kind of go on this way until the council agrees on an outcome. And they decide that they're going to inform the churches and these new Gentile converts about the outcome with a letter. And Emma read us the letter, but I want to read it again because I just think it's really funny. So here's the letter that they write to the churches. It says this, We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. This is my favorite part. 
it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. (laughs) It's a terse way to end the letter. My favorite phrase in this moment is verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love that because honestly, it doesn't feel very definitive. It doesn't feel very certain or even that confident to me. They've had this large conversation. They've argued from Scripture. They've seen the work of God. And then they're like, "Ah, it seems pretty good that we do this. No snippy snippy, but don't strangle the animals. You know, like general sense of things. I think that's very important to pay attention to, actually. Because I think what happens at the outcome of this story is not very certain. And I think discernment rarely leads to the kind of certainty or clarity that we would like it to. If we felt certain, we probably didn't need to do any discernment in the first place. Discernment is always, I think, a risk in faith that we make together. We see what God is doing. We hear from the scriptures to inform what God is doing and how our understanding of that plays out. We learn from each other. We dialogue together. And then we chart a course and risk together in joining what we believe God is unfolding before us and around us. And sometimes the best we can say is it seemed good to us and the Spirit to take this risk. I don't know if you've ever done any discernment in your life or with community. That is always how it feels to me. You have good wisdom speaking in from one place. You have an impulse in your heart that you believe is God. You read the Scripture and you're like, it seems clear what God cares about. So I'm going to take this risk to this job or this project or this relationship. I'm going to repair this like broken relationship. But it always feels like a risk because I don't know what the outcome of any of those things are going to be. It always feels uncertain to me at some level. I think this is beautiful and I think it is really freeing to know that this is how the church was operating in the midst of such a complicated and difficult conversation. But if I'm honest, it is also nerve-wracking to me. This kind of uncertainty can make me, and I think all of us, feel uncomfortable. And I think when we feel uncomfortable, we can experience anxiety. And when I feel anxiety, then I try to grip for control, I actually search for certainty in my need for anxiety or in my feelings of anxiety. And I think sometimes this is what happens in the church is that we feel uncomfortable when something is being discerned. And so we double down on a position or an idea or a conviction or a feeling because it gives us a sense of security and certainty. It makes us feel more comfortable but it does so at the expense of joining in what God is doing, of moving towards one another and of risking in faith. What we see in Acts 15, 
I think is a vision for discerning together as a community. And I don't think it is prescriptive and that it's a formula for how to do things, but I do think it is descriptive of what life together can be like. Of what it can be like to discern together, of what it can be like to pay attention together, of what it can be like when we take risks together. It can feel uncertain and strange and even a little scary, which is why it requires faith. And though Acts 15 is not prescriptive, there's no formula here, I do think that as we hear this story and sort of gain a vision for what discerning as a community can look like, I do think there is some postures, there may be practices we can say, that help us do this work well together. Maybe you could call them orientations that help us discern together. And the rest of our time, what I want to do is talk through a few postures that I think can help us do this work together. Because I think pretty quickly you can see on its surface how this could get very messy. And that's part of the game, I do think. There's also ways of engaging together in ways that are mutual and respectful and attentive. So I want to talk through a handful of postures. And I'm going to move kind of quickly just because I don't want to keep you here all day. The postures that I think will help us do this work together. So posture number one is this. We keep Jesus at our center. I love what Peter says in this passage when he's talking about, like, what is the big clue of everything that's happening? He's like, we've been saved by Jesus and can confirm that these people have been saved by Jesus. The center of all the discerning work and of all of the movement and of all the discussion and of all the debate is Jesus. This posture holds that we are united by Jesus more than we are by other convictions, beliefs, politics, or even preferences. We care most and are defined most by Jesus and living and loving like Jesus. This is why we began this series with other practices of Christ-likeness. Because if we're not growing in this way, and if we're not maturing in this way, and if we're not taking responsibility for our own healing in this way, then this process of talking and discerning together will be very tricky. We believe that Jesus is big enough to hold the center. And we are moving together towards that center. So that's posture number one. Posture number two is we hold a posture of listening to God's self and others. This might feel like intuitively obvious. But the thing I really want to name here is listening to self. I don't know if you've ever been in a conflict with somebody or been in a disagreement or a, uh, in, my, in my household whenever Tori and I are arguing, we say we're negotiating. I don't know if you've ever been in a negotiation with somebody. <laughs> if you can have values that are important and true, And those values can get triggered in a negotiation in ways that create frustration or anger or fear. And the thing underneath the fear is good. But if we're not careful and if we don't listen to ourselves and ask curious, inquisitive questions about our own health, we can act out of the fear in ways that are inappropriate or painful or damaging. So if we're going to discern together well, I think we have to be listening to ourselves pretty well to be like, what is the value? What is the thing that I care about in this 
moment? And why do I feel the way that I do? And why am I acting the way that I am acting? So to listen to both God and others, but also ourselves if we're going to engage in this work well. Number three, we have to have a posture of mutuality. This is the belief that others have something to offer. That others, even people you deeply disagree with, have something to give you. And that you would be better if you received it. This is a hard one to practice. Mutuality is the practice of deference, of creating space for someone else, to use an unpopular word of mutual submission. Being willing to submit ourselves to someone else and to the community around us. And it's also the willingness to speak and to to have an opinion and to be brave enough to bring that opinion into a mutual conversation with others. We begin the benefit of the doubt and we let go our need for control, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and practice this kind of mutual engagement with one another. Number four, we look to the wisdom of Scripture. Two weeks ago, we did a whole practice on Scripture and talking about how Scripture is not a textbook or even a book about moral codes and behavior. It is the story of Jesus that gives us the wisdom to live and look like Jesus. It forms in us an imagination for what life with Christ can be like. And so we're informed and shaped and guided by the wisdom of Scripture. And we bring that with us as Paul brought the wisdom of Scripture to the debate in Acts 15. Number five, we have a willingness to take risks. We've named this quite a bit. Discernment is risky work. We cannot control the outcomes. And we can't control the outcomes if we're really listening or if we're really practicing mutuality. True mutuality gives up control so that we as a community or as a body or as a family or as a marriage can actually come to some new end on the other side, really listening to what God is doing my experience with discernment is that it never goes as I expect it to go. That's why I love the end of the story where they're like, it seemed good to us in the Spirit to go this direction. But that's also my own experience with discernment. And it's also what makes discernment so tricky. Like, I named this at our team gathering, but there are some risks that I want to take this year, some risks in faith, specifically around repairing or trying to reconcile difficult relationships. And here's my hope, is that I do that work and it's like real kumbaya. What I think is probably going to happen is I'm going to receive a terse email. <laughs> but that's the risk. And it's also a risk to not allow myself to not do it because the terse email is what I get. It has to be good kind of in and of itself regardless of what the outcome is. And that's risky. That requires faith. And because things rarely go as we expect, and because it is a risk, and because we're engaged in this work together, it can cause some pain. So the posture number six is we seek repentance and repair often and regularly and just kind of constantly. (laughs) There's been moments where we've been in theological conversations, someone's had a theological debate or issue with me. And because this is a thing I care about so deeply, it's connected to my emotions and my values. And there's been moments when I've been in conversations where I've said things to people, I just wish I hadn't. I think what I said was sort of like undergrounded in truth. Like I believed the thing I was saying, but the way I said it could have been better. 
That often happens when we're engaged in this kind of work. So we seek repair quickly, we're willing to repent and to give grace and to receive grace and to ask for grace. And to trust one another that when we seek repentance and repair, we'll receive it and our friends will do likewise. And number seven, the last one, is we have to have a posture that grows comfortable with being uncomfortable. Discernment is messy. It will always, I think, challenge our sense of security, our sense of control. It will often lead to conflict. Conflict is not bad. There can be healthy forms of conflict in a community. Now, there can be unhealthy forms of conflict in a community. And there are moments when it is appropriate to leave a community. Please don't hear me saying that's not true. There is. But there is a kind of uncomfortability that is actually worth wading into and living in. And I think if we're going to do this kind of discernment work together, we have to grow increasingly resilient as a body with being uncomfortable. I think this is one of the reasons that Scripture so often uses the metaphor of birth to describe what God is doing. It is very uncomfortable until new life comes into the world. Oh, and then it's also still very uncomfortable. It is in that mess and in that difficulty and in that tension that new things are birthed, unexpected things, beautiful things come into existence. Now, these postures do not guarantee that things go clean or well or easy. But I think these postures, which maybe you could even summarize just with one word of like being humble towards one another, enable space to open up where we can really listen, engage with one another, pay attention to what God is doing, and in faith, join in what God is doing around us. What if we practiced this together? What if we practiced it in our own lives, in our families, in our workplaces? What if we practiced this kind of communal discernment together? What might happen in the midst of us? One of my favorite stories of us practicing communal discernment happened in my own home church a handful of years ago. And it's such a small example, but I just love this story. I think I've told it before. We were in our home church, and a member of my home church had been saving money to go on a vacation. And this is a guy who, like, works too much, doesn't go on vacation very often. So this felt like kind of its own risk in faith, to be like, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to rest. I'm going to Sabbath. And we were all encouraging him to do it for a long time. And then on a Sunday morning, he heard about a need in the community, a financial need in the community. And he felt like I was telling him to give the money that he had raised for going on vacation to the communal need. And he started wrestling with this and praying through this and trying to discern what do I do with this like feeling that I have from God and also this value that my community around me has told me to emphasize. So he brings it to home church. He says, here's the situation. I have this money and I want to go on this trip, but I've seen this need and I want to address it. Would you help me think it through? So I, I don't really remember what happened post that moment. I wish I had more clarity about the details of this situation so that you could try to replicate it. But we began to talk and think and discern together, and, and the most wonderful thing happened. The most wonderful thing happened. Somebody in the community, in our home church, was like, I will take care of the need. You go on the vacation. 
And then somebody else in the community was like, I would like to help with the need. You go on vacation. And then somebody else was like, oh, I will also help with the need. You go on vacation. And I love this story because it is so simple. It's such a simple, easy risk to take, to be like, I have a question that I don't know the answer to. Would you help me think it through? And I cannot tell you that the expected outcome would be that you raise like $3,000. Like, I, like, don't take that to the bank. But what you might find is that your community can enter into those questions with you in beautiful ways. And that where you could only imagine one faithful outcome, your community helps you imagine more. They can partner with you, and you can partner with them. And something new and beautiful and truly wonderful can take place. Because I think that is an image of communal discernment, one that we are invited into all the time. And it's an image that we practice as we gather at this table. It's one of the reasons we gather at this table week in and week out. This table is a sign of our collective life together, united around the person of Jesus. And we sit together in mutuality and as a family to share in life together, to practice belonging, and even to discern together what it is that God is doing here, through us, and around us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for these practices. I love this story in Acts 15 because it feels empowering and imaginative, like an invitation into some kind of like wild living with you. So God, I just, would you curate that and cultivate that in us? You've given us all we need to discern together. The scriptures, your spirit, your story, and your body, that we can navigate this world through you. And thank you that you've given us grace when we don't do it all that well. To get up and try again. Deeply centered and rooted in the goodness and love of you and the goodness of one another. So God, guide us today and help us risk in faith towards you with each other. In your name we pray. Amen.